Hello, my guest this week is Billy Curry, who is uh, best known for his work with the hugely successful and influential new wave band Ultravox, who achieved massive commercial success in the 1980s, um, but they're still very much loved by many fans today, and their legacy does live on. Billy was also a member of Visage, and he spoke to me about uh, the early days of Ultravox, working with the legendary German producer, uh, Connie Blank. And then he goes into great detail um, towards the end of the uh, of our conversation about the making of the classic track Vienna, which I'm sure will be of um, great interest to any musicians listening. Um, he really was a fan- fascinating guy to speak to and a real storyteller. I mean, he's some brilliant stories in this one. So I'd like to welcome to this podcast today, Billy Curry. So I'm really delighted to be joined by Billy on the podcast today. So thanks for coming on. Oh, brilliant. No problem. Um, I'd like to sort of start off. I know things are looking a lot brighter now in, in the music world and um, concerts are happening again and stuff like that. Um, and the world seems to be touch wood moving along a little bit more than it did. And um, so if we yeah. kind of go back to um, a year or so ago when we were all like in lockdowns and I just wondered how that affected you or or, or not or not really. I mean, were you working on anything then or or what the kind of things you did to sort of keep yourself busy? I, I sort of what I used to do, really, I have my own studio in a converted part of the house. The convert, it's a garage that's converted. So I just carried on as normal going in into my studio. So it, it was all going on and, and we were all getting very frustrated with it. Uh, I live here with my wife and my son. He's uh, just gone 25. So it was awful to see my son losing time, precious time, because he'd just turned 23. And then we went into the lockdown at the beginning of 2000, February, March. He'd just come back from Finland, actually. He goes as friends there and he goes playing ice hockey. So uh, so at least he got a holiday in, but then it all closed down just after that. So it was difficult uh, from the perspective of being a father, really, you know, because yeah. my son was trying to get on with things as a barber. He's a barber. And it's a funny thing to get into because uh, there's no real rules. It's, it's, it's quite sort of, you know, the Wild West out there, you know, and, and it can take about six years to gather your experience. And he was, it just got to that point. Mm. So I felt a bit sorry, frustrated for him. Uh, and, but in, you know, um, but anyway, once, once we got back and opened up last year, which was April, Lucky enough for him, he's he's got moving now. He's he's got a he's got to the level that he needs to be, and he's gone into town, which I'm pleased about. He's at Fulham, so I always felt he needed to get into town. He just needed that confidence. Yeah, and it's an image thing. A lot to do is is with an image thing, you know. He's a musician as well. He's a guitarist, right. so I, I try not to put too much of the musician thing onto what he's doing as a barber, but yeah. I can't help it because <laughs> I have to say to him, really, you'd be better off in town because when you go and get your hair cut, guys, they look up to the barber. Well, look down, or if they don't, yeah. <laughs> you know, 
not going there. Yeah. But you know what I mean? You want yeah. a piece of it, don't you? Some guy looks great. So he's now working in Fulham. That's brilliant. Oh, that's so good. What's even, what's even more brilliant, he might be moving out soon. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you'll miss it. <laughs> but, for me, but for me, to get back to what I'm doing, I, I'm just going along, doing my music, coming here and doing my music yeah. r- routine. Uh, probably dropped off a little bit, but um, it was quite good, really. So, I mean, I met in 2020, I made a contact with uh, um, Burning Shed, which is a, a, to re-release my albums is to do a proper reissues of all my albums. Oh, brilliant. In the last four didn't even get a proper release anyway. They were just on Amazon on demand. The others were on uh, voice print back in 2001, 2002, three, four, five, six. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they, I, was, I was busy uh, getting it, uh, building up a relationship with... Uh, Burning Shed, who are now releasing all my, they released my latest one, the Brushwork All Blast. So it's quite interesting to do that. And, mm-hmm. and now we're going backwards. We're going backwards. We've got Refine, which is the fourth one we were doing from 2009. That will be coming out in a few weeks. Oh, so it's quite interesting to, to do that stuff. But usually when I'm doing that stuff, I'm also writing an album as well. Yeah. So I tend to get a bit, can get a bit frazzled and I, I find it hard to do two, two different things. Yeah, if I'm writing, I'm in creative mode and I don't quite often just get over to the other side of thinking business and, um, well, important stuff. But, but it's kind of practical because I already have the artwork, so I'm not sort of... Um, you know, desperately trying to sort out original artwork or anything, you know, uh, in some cases a little bit. So, so I have been busy. And like I said, uh, end of 2000, they released, did a CD release of the Brushwork Old Blast, which had been out for a few months, but just a streaming. But last year, I've just been, uh, last year, I must admit, has been a bit quiet. I'm working on a new album and I'm quite a few tracks into it, okay. uh, which I've just, just had a look at and uh, um, it's funny, you know, you think you aren't doing so much because it's felt like it's been a bit slow. Yeah. And then you look at it and I'm like, oh, no, I've got six six or seven ideas. Uh, oh, that's brilliant. Coming together. So I've, I have been uh, keeping it, keeping that's things brilliant. going. I mean, this sounds great. So they can, um, listeners to this podcast, they could visit Burning Shed to... to to purchase these albums, can't they? So, um, yes. So I'll put or a link to that later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, or they can see on my music section of the um, of my website. Yeah. yeah. Definitely get everyone to go and look at that. And um, because I'm just thinking of your early musical memories. I mean, you obviously mentioned Huddersfield. Did Did you go to? Is it Huddersfield? Um, was it a college to study music? Is that correct? Yeah. 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 So music college. I'm just thinking of your sort of first memories. So what was the first instrument that you remember getting as a child? What, what did you what did you first start playing? Uh, it was the guitar. Oh, when right. I was about, when I was about 10, my cousin, uh, David, my, uh, my dad had quite a few brothers and one brother, Tom, had a son called David and he used to come over. They used to come over from Lancashire. They lived in Oldham. On my mother's side are from uh, Lancashire and my dad's from Yorkshire, although my dad's dad is from Scotland uh, with the name Curry, you know, Scottish. Uh, and he used to come up with a guitar 
and I didn't particularly like kind of music he was playing because he was trying to get me into this. I can't remember what it was really, but for me it was just like not interested at all. Oh yeah, it, it might be like Johnny Mathis or these crooners singers. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know Johnny Mathis is. Yeah, you know yeah. that were around yeah. in the end of the 1950s. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was like, no, I can't. I don't really go for this stuff. I was only ten. I mean, I was I was listening. Uh, I mean, I was a bit of a mad son. So, I mean, at school, my last year at junior school, at that time, I played guitar in front of the school and put on a show playing singing because I still had a singing voice. I had a soprano voice with a friend, a couple of friends. I mean, it's embarrassing, really. <laughs> and, and singing these Cliff Richard songs, and my friend liked Elvis Presley. I mean, and then I remembered all the lyrics, you know, I loved it and getting into the lyrics and I used to play a little bit, but single note stuff on the guitar. And I think he bought me a guitar, yeah. So I was, it's lovely, I do my initials of my name on the guitar in bright colours, because I used to do paint as well. So I used to, you know, take uh, time to put my bit of painting on the guitar to spruce it up a bit. Mm. And... Uh, yeah, so I was messing around on guitar, but I mean, what fascinated me, uh, at, the at the same time, I had a friend of my dad's coming up from the war. He was in, in the war with him. He wasn't related. He used to turn up once every couple of weeks, walk up from the bottom of the valley. God, it sounds, sounds like I lived, lived in the back of beyond, didn't it? But there were beautiful valleys there, beautiful place to live. And he used to come and walk, walk up in fitness, and, and bring a violin oh. and he used to play the violin and of course he was quite influential very soon because he could see I was interested and in, in awe of it really I loved mm. looking at it and he suggested he should try and learn to play and he put some influence in there with the family but it was really my um, uh, cousin David on the guitar because I couldn't comprehend the guitar easier because on a violin there's no frets on a guitar there's frets mm. so he first taught me how to play Catch a Falling Star which is Catch a Falling Star and that really is just like the playing you know a scale da, 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 da. and then and that's how it dawned on me that oh wow that's how you get notes you know oh, that's how you get notes, you know, you just change the distance of the string. I mean, it may not seem much to a 10-year-old. You're like, wow, the possibilities. But then it also, I, I just, I was always into pop music. And, I, and, then I, and then when I started getting violin lessons at school, they became available. The thing is with me, I suffered from the 11 plus and I failed it, and I just thought an absolute waste of space. My brother was academic, three years older than me, and it had a bigger impact on me because he went, to, he passed it and went to the grammar school, you know. Yeah. So when I went to my um, secondary modern school, this place called Mount Pleasant in, in the outskirts of Huddersfield, um, a bit of a dump really in the area, um, and this the little orchestra came along and played on the stage. And, and said, played for us, you know, and said, yeah. anybody who wants to learn the violin or cello or, or you can come up and learn. We have peripatetic teachers that will come to the school. Wow. And, and I was like, yes, please, I'll have some of that. But it was a little bit of trying to get my self-esteem back as well because I felt a bit of a failure, you know, like, yeah. well, what am I good at? 
because earlier on at school, at infant school, I was very good at maths, getting all my uh, maths correct. You know, I was exceptional. And then it all went a bit pear-shaped <laughs> with algebra. I just did, couldn't see the point, you know. Mm. Uh, and so I got a bit left behind and I wasn't, definitely wasn't in bothered with English. So, um, so it was a great, I jumped in two feet deep, you know, like, yes, I'll have some of that. And so that I went on from there. But I was always the kind of person I'd be listening to. My mum bought, my mum was very into music. My dad had a really good voice and he used to sing sometimes. And he played the mouth organ, which again, I thought was mind blowing. How the hell could you play that? You know, how can you get melodies out of that? You know, it really was like to a 10 year old, wow, he's, he's a genius. You know, I could never play the mouth organ. And so all, all along in my life, I always had these two sides of me. I love pop music and, and rock music and dance music. But I also was, my mum and I used to like classical music. So mm. she, I remember she bought me the Tchaikovsky uh, Violin Concerto. I mean, I had no idea what it was like, but it's from that because it's, it's quite uh, superior. It's the big orchestra vibe of the late 18th century. So I was pretty knocked out by that. Yeah. Just the sophistication of it, you know, the, the way he uses strings. And I was thinking, God, no one gets anything like that. No other composers his use of strings, especially on symphony number no. six. Uh, and so that was quite mind blowing. And I got into Mendelssohn. And this is just the little um, vinyl in the corner, you know, it's probably sounded like absolutely awful. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so exciting, you know, with, with one speaker sticking out. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I used to blast that out, you know, but like I say, it was, I was either blasting out Tchaikovsky's violin concerto, take that off, and then I put on the Rolling Stones, not fade away, you know. Wow. Which I thought was absolute genius. I've got equal uh, admiration for both types of music, you know. That's great. You know, it's, it's just certain sections of like, if you listen to Not Fade Away, even though it is a cover of the Rolling Stones, it's just the way that the rhythms, played you know and where they leave things out and just let the rhythm be you know it's mm. like I'd, 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 even though I was only about 11 I would just kind of start to study stuff like that you know that's amazing so how did you um so in terms of your first kind of should we say rock band was that I'm trying to think of the name now off the top of my head was it Tiger Lily was that like your first band or were you in Tiger Lily. Uh, no not really that was the name that Ultravox was calling themselves when I first ah. joined. I'd played with some bands before then. Okay. I played in some bands in Huddersfield, not not seriously, but just jamming and messing about. Got a bit of an influence from a piano player who used to play blues. Yeah. So I was kind of getting interested in blues. But through through the 60s, I was always lined up to be an orchestral player. I got a, uh, a place at the Royal Academy of Music in 1969. But I was like, I'm in an R and I was getting a bit um, schizoid. I was like, oh, God, I'm, I'm going to do this. Because I, I thought, God, I've been offered this amazing chance. And my parents have backed me and paid paid for me, you know, to help me to do this. Yeah. Instead of going out and getting a job. So there's a lot of pressure. But um, there was a band in town and a friend of mine, a drummer, Wayne Goddard, asked me to come along and just have a jam because I was becoming more and more aware from listening to rock music at the time of the ability to play freely without notes. I was getting very fascinated about that and the power of it. 
And so I went up to just jam with them in this ha little house, actually, mm -hmm. uh, going up towards Marston in, um, in the beautiful countryside going up there. You know the kind of countryside I mean, you know, all yeah. the black brick and everything. And there we are in this tiny little house. We had a Hammond organ, a sax player, and the kit of drums. And they brought me in with a viola, which looked very, very classical. I had a very good viola, though. Just my parents had helped me get a very good viola, you know. Yeah. And so there I was just jamming away with them. And, oh, just the influence of my uh, people, of my time, of my... They were only a couple of years older than me. So it was like, right, that's it. I'm off. And they say, we're going to a house in a commune in Norfolk. Uh, and so to, to, to just get it together, you know, to, to jam every day. So I just left, buggered mm -hmm. off, basically. This was right in the middle of my exams, my A-levels. I'd done half of my A-levels and I just had to go and sit and do the rest. Wow. So it was a very stressful moment. But once I'd gone, I just... Um... <clears throat> so I worked with that band from, this was sort of May... They were called Spring Birth. Oh, right. And, and at first, anyway, they changed the name to Company Roadshow later on because we were very influenced by the Grateful Dead. Yeah. So we came up with a name which was more like them. So I was right bang in the middle of the hippie movement, but I was also young. You know, I was only pretty young, really. They were a, bit, a couple of years older than me. And so that time I, I did learn how to improvise, which is very, very important to me because... It was only because I did that right up until Christmas and then I got kicked out. Right up until, it was so intense that um, the leader was a very intelligent guy called Henry Cravel. Unfortunately, he's not around now, it's a shame. Uh, died in 2015, it was his band, he was from Bath. He'd got a bit of money, you know, especially to have a Hammond. And he kind of helped me a bit. Uh, and also the sax player, called Fred, I don't even know his name, and my friend Wayne Goddard, they all helped me understand. But he was, um, he was quite cutting the leader. He wasn't going to mess about because he was kind of slightly financing it a bit as well. So he was quite cutting when it was obvious from the look on his face when I wasn't getting it right. Mm. So, so we eventually we didn't get on because it was just too much for me. I don't like being told what to do. And that, it felt like that eventually. So I did, yeah. told him what for, and I got kicked out. <laughs> the, <laughs> last, the last gig we did was at the end of 2009, 16, sorry, 1969 at the Builders Club in Huddersfield, where the, I used to go and I saw quite a lot of bands there. Um, uh, the, um, the drummer played there. The reason why I was so impressed with the, the drummer is because he played with Graham Bond, at uh, the Builders, the Graham Bond organization. Don't know if you know of him. Uh, and um, that's why I was impressed with um, Graham Bond was an organ player, threw himself in, uh, under a tube because of his involvement in, supposedly his involvement in the dark arts. Wow. <laughs> that's the oh. 60s for you. <laughs> oh, so it is a bit sad. I shouldn't be laughing like no, that. Yeah, but, I, but it was amazing to see the guy uh, perform on, on a Hammond when Wayne was playing. So that, that was in my head as well. But in that year, I did, I, I, I did a jam at Eel Pie Island. We performed su supporting Pink Fairies and the, oh. the main guitarist who started Fairport and uh, sorry, Fleetwood Mac. 
that Mick, uh, not Mick Fleetwood, the guy who left, oh. uh, I always forget his name, Peter Green. That's right. Yeah, so I'd had a jam with Peter Green. Wow. So it was, all, and I was living in Portobello Road, you know, right near Basin Street, which eventually became Ireland, became uh, Psalm West in the 80s, you know, where Trevor Horn was. I was right there looking yeah, at that. That's, right. that's bizarre. Uh, and, you know, so it was tough times, though, because I wasn't eating, you know, I had to get food from uh, um, Okabai Crook, you know, and uh, it was difficult. Uh, um, so, yeah, so eventually I uh, left that. But, I mean, it goes on, really. Then The next year, 2070, I lived in Plymouth. I was always travelling around. <laughs> but I, later on in the year, I went to Bristol, and, and I was in a band there. And that was the band that had Peter Perry, or whatever his name, who eventually joined the Only Ones. Oh, that's right, yeah. The Only Ones, yeah. Oh, yeah, so I was in that band. I love that, yeah. You know, Gibson SG, yeah, it was fucking loud. No, sorry. <laughs> <Excuse> <laughs> <laughs> and we did a gig up in, 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 I moved to violin then because I thought it was more akin to rock bands because they were pretty loud, uh, you know, just a, a loud out and out rock band. And I, but I did a gig up in Birmingham, but I'd only got this uh, cheap pickup. Um, the, the Japanese hadn't really got involved by then with technology. So I just this cheap, funny pickup thing. So I literally did get blown off stage. Very, very embarrassing. I got some support from my friends because there's quite a few people from Elizabeth living down there. So they were like, oh, never mind, son, you know, never mind, lad, you know. <laughs> they were very supportive. Oh. I literally got blown off. You know, I had to get off because they oh. were just, they were not good. They just got on stage and turned up, you know. Yeah. So it wasn't how we rehearsed it. And then I moved over to Bath. So there's things happening all the time. Bath's a beautiful place. I was pulling the cur- pulling the curtains up at the Bath Theatre Royal for money. And I met this guy called Jeff Stars, singer-songwriter. And this is a kind of a fascination with singer-songwriters, just the idea of the song. I started getting interested in songs, just how it's done, you know. And this guy just could write songs. And I would improvise on the viola with him. And he was um, very influenced by West Coast, Californian stuff. Of course, he introduced me to the Grateful Dead. We went to see the Grateful Dead at the Lyceum. But there were other people as well, like the Flying Burrito Brothers, which was totally new to me, that kind of stuff, because I'd been more into psychedelic rock. This was kind of almost slightly, well, Californian, slightly country sort of thing. And, uh, and, And also, what's that guy? Song of the Siren, Tim Buckley. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and also Van Morrison, you know, Astral Weeks was at that time. So I was very influenced by that, all that kind of stuff because I could improvise and it allows for improvised music. But it wasn't, I knew it wasn't my kind of music really. I had to face up to it. We supported the Straubs, actually. I'd, mm. We've got a manager that, Mark Plummer, who worked at Melody Maker. So we knew Chris Welsh, who was at the Melody Maker in 1971. So we've got these contacts. And we were, might be the manager of the Straubs. Oh, God, I've forgotten his name now. Quite a big name manager. Was going to take us on and, and he wanted to see us. So we supported the Straubs when the Straubs were very big. The single lay down, lay, lay, lay down. Oh, yeah, du, 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 du. classic chord progression, that isn't it? And um, so 
we played on there and, and the straws were lovely, Dave Cousins. He let me use the and, and Blue Blue Weaver. They let me use their piano. Because oh, nice. I moved to piano then and I, there was only one song that I was on piano because we could only manage to get hold of a piano in someone's place in Bath for one day a week. It was someone else's. So they let me play my a grand piano. So that was the first time I was on stage playing a grand piano. And uh, it was a ballad called Perfect Flight. And then all the rest was with him on guitar, Jeff on guitar and me on viola. But I, I distinctly playing, remember playing the first chord. It's like a D fourth. That's how it started. And looking to my left and seeing Dave Cousins going like this, looking, looking to see what I was doing. <laughs> Welcome, welcome to the music business. Wow. Yeah, I love that. I don't mean that in a cynical way. No, it's just no. Musicians are great. They're great. Right. I mean, I was really helped. And anyway, that didn't work. My, again, I, my pickup let me down and it started feeding back. It's awful experience. You know, I can still see the manager at the front going, ah, ah. Uh, you know, so anyway, I left that Oh, you know, we came to London. We, we, we tried that, you know, with a band. It, uh, Jeff had some a drummer and guitarist. We tried it, rehearsing down in wonderful Catford. Sorry, I mean to be sarcastic. <laughs> South, South London, you know. And uh, there's my connection with South London because I lived down South London later on. And, but it, it didn't work out. I was sleeping on the floor, you know. God, it was just awful. But... Anyway, we, I'd made some connections. I knew Chris Welsh from Melody Maker and Mark Plummer. And, but I left and decided a friend of mine had given me a squat in Islington. And that was fantastic. I could get away and just get a job. But it was also coincided with him being... Uh, I played for a short time in 1970 with a performance art group with this drama teacher called Barry Edwards, at Huddersfield, he was there at Huddersfield College. Mm. And uh, there the idea was to get back together in 2022. So that that was, they were helping me, you know, they said, yeah, you have this squat. Yeah. And we start working at the beginning of next year, 1972. So I just had an ordinary job then and just enjoyed living in Islington, loved it, getting to know people, you know, just having a great time. Just like when I was in Bath, lots of fun times, yeah. drinking, and other things <laughs> you, <laughs> usually, <laughs> you do but going to the king's ed pub you know which is also theater and there was a band on there that i used to like listening to again just a small singer songwriter acoustic guitar i mean i i, I really realized what you could do with a, a singer songwriter the expanse what how he could expand it yeah. into a band but i never got to be able to do it i tried but nearly but then so i did that for a whole year with performance art, touring, went to Amsterdam, Sheffield Crucible, ICA, ICA sorry, in London, and Chris Walsh reviewed it and gave me a bit of a plug, so there you go, there's the contact kind of thing, mm. uh, uh, which was nice, uh, and especially when it was performance art. I did that, and we didn't get a grant. We were supposed to get a grant in September of that year, but it was great fun. I was playing constantly we were, in, we were in time outs you know and things uh, we were doing okay in London a lot you know yeah. 
and, and a place down in Oval doing these performances. They were very, very live. So the improvisational ability that I got from being in Spring Birth enabled me to just be totally free with these performance art group, which consisted of about three musicians and three performers, which was completely improvised. Yeah. So I could just go on there. And, and the, the performers taught me how to be physical as well, to, pro, to ex, express yourself physically. But, but anyway, sorry to cut the long story short, I, I left that at the end of September 1972 and I went back up to Huddersfield and I was a bit depressed really and I, I had a, a time of again just enjoying myself being young with my mates in Huddersfield I worked in a warehouse a physical job just having fun you know yeah. but you know you've got to watch your weight haven't you yeah. <laughs> but you know eating Cornish pasties and stuff <laughs> and pumping stuff and drinking as well you know what yeah. drinking booze which you're not supposed to of course and then I got a job as a pastry artist through some artist friends who would put me up in London, uh, in South London, and being a pastry artist. But I got sacked from that. But then one of these performers from the theatre group, performance art group I was in, called Ritual Theatre, called Eddie, he, um, he eventually got a group together called Eddie, uh, Gloria Monday later oh. on. Gloria Monday. And Eddie and Sunshine, that was in the 80s. He, he said, look, I'm dancing with this band uh, when they play live in London. Stop fucking about up in Huddersfield and, and sort of get your arse down here. You know? He was very strong. Remember in those days, no emails or anything. This is just a phone call, you know. Get your arse down here, you know. You're wasting your life. Which was a strong thing to say. Yeah. So I did you know, I just came down. There's an artist who was studying at Camberwell, this friend of mine, Jonathan. So I studied art at Huddersfield College as well. So he put me up at Clapham North, him and his girlfriend. I knew his girlfriend. She was from where I was from in Huddersfield, Netherton, from the old days when I was about 14, 15, I knew her. And uh, so they put me up for six weeks while they were on holiday. And in that six weeks, I got a job at the Hard Rock and I established um, myself with John Fox, Dennis Lee, with his band, because that was the band that Eddie was talking about, oh, right. called Tiger Lily. Oh. And they had um, rehearsal space at King's Cross through a friend of Dennis, Dennis Lee, John Fox. And he had shops, and this was the place where they did had some room where they would do the, sh the dummies before they put them in the window. So we had a rehearsal space there. So I was in four nights a week, all day Sunday. That's how it started, four nights a week, all day Sunday, like for, for three years. And, and amazingly, so I moved to violin because I felt like it was more better for a rock band, you know. Uh, and amazingly, when I got the gig, um, they were going to get a keyboard player instead of me. Uh, it was more of an established rock, um, someone that you might have in the small faces, oh, right. and, yeah. you know, that type of uh, keyboard player. Yeah. Luckily for me, John liked the idea. He realised quite soon that I also play keyboards, although I didn't actually openly say so. And he quite liked the idea of the experimentation of get, taking a gamble on someone like me, which is very nice just thinking ahead, you know. Yeah. He didn't really want cliched blues keyboard playing, you know what I mean? No. 
he wanted someone that might do something different while well, a classical background, which is very interesting. Yeah, yeah. How he would see, see he was looking further forward, you know, uh, in the writing area of things and influences. And amazingly, I, um, I said, right, I'm staying. They came back and I had to get a flat. And they said, oh, try our landlord. He might have somewhere. And I got a flat uh, immediately straight away in Hearn Hill. And I stayed there till um, from 1973 to, to 1979 in Hearn Hill that, in South London. Mm-hmm. And that's when it all started with rehearsing with... Uh, what we'd call Tiger Lily then. We changed the name a lot. We, 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 you know, we did a couple of gigs as Tiger Lily. We released Ain't Misbehaving. We did a, a version of Ain't Misbehaving in 1975, uh, but they didn't choose our version. They choose this Jazzo guy, uh, what was his name? See, I forgot his name, because it's so long ago now. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> So, so, but it was useful because we got a, not so much that we got a release out, because it wasn't really our kind of thing in this period. I mean, I, I arranged it, you know, which was great because, again, Dennis could see that I was capable of doing that kind of thing. So I'm making it available so I could tell the guys what notes to play, you know. Yeah. I know it sounds like I'm being a bit of a big head, but, I mean, I'd learned all that stuff, you know. So why not use it? Yeah, so it's like, but it was a rock version of it, you know, but I played a violin solo. But what the main thing is, it, we put one of our tracks on, on the B-side, Monkey Jive, where we haven't even got a keyboard yet, but I could play piano. And I found that interesting, how a, a grand piano could sound quite good with a rock track. Because I was, I was learning, you know, all the time. And, the, and trying to get my head around the idea of playing keyboards because they always seem so naff to me, you know. Mm-hmm. I was interested in having that scope and I was so surprised when we did Monkey Chive that, oh, the piano actually f- fitted. I really liked the confidence, you know. Yeah. But from that, from that, we got a few hundred quid, so we bought this compact piano, electric piano, called Compact, which sounded absolutely dire. But the thing is... The main thing is we could be in the rehearsal room. That's the beauty of an electric piano. You know, you could move it around and just plug it into a amp and there you, there you go, you're off and running, you know. Yeah. It sounded pretty awful. But that was the beginning of Tiger Lily starting to expand and doing more melodic sort of pop tracks. You know, we were quite uh, schizophrenic, really. We were doing pop tracks and then... Then we might be doing like Saturday Night in the City of the Dead, and then quite fast moving, probably influenced by the pub rock stuff that was going on at the time, prior to punk. Yeah. Then there'd be this other stuff where, because I'd played, come up with this piano piece, uh, Dennis, which I played at someone's party actually, because I could never get onto a piano, you know. He liked that, and he said, "Oh, I, I, I could write a song." So he wrote a song before that. To that, that would we would start with that song, and then we'd go into my instrumental bit at the end, and that was "Slip Away." Mm. So there was this, these different kind of things mm. coming. In. You know, he, he, he was he, he was what's the word? He had foresight, did uh, Dennis, because 
he, he responded because when I played my piece of music at this party, which was just like do 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 do, which was a bit like Steve Reich uh, or um, uh, the other guy. Oh, uh, uh, rainbows in curved air. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, but you know what I mean by Steve Wright, don't you? Oh, yes. It's um, uh, yeah, very um, American, isn't he? I think. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's extremely uh, important, yeah. Influential. I've, for, I've just forgotten his name. Yeah, so uh, John was, you know, he was, we were attuned there, you know, instead of him going like, oh, the hell's that you know yeah but why would we want to put that in a rock band you know this ding 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 mes- mesmerizing sort of stuff he got into it straight away so he go at the end of his song it becomes mesmerizing with it you know time to be well do 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 you know he's do, does yeah. this melody over it which is great uh, and uh so that's what we so, so that's what we did. We just rehearsed for four nights a week, all day Sunday, until we got a deal in <laughs> in nineteen seventy six. But I mean, I nearly buggered off in nineteen seventy five because I was so pissed off <laughs> doing doing a, a, an awful job. You know, we just had to get on with it. I mean, there was a couple of the guys, Warren and Chris, who were cleaning toilets through the nights. They'd finished our rehearsals and they'd go off cleaning toilets. That was mm-hmm. their way of getting money. The clever one, Stevie Shears, he, he, he seemed to master the art of signing on. <laughs> we, never quite, <laughs> we never quite knew about that one that well. I didn't really want to sign on. Mm-hmm. And I was working at um, the Hard Rock, but I got sacked from that, and that was shift, so it didn't quite fit in with the rehearsals. But I worked at Dunhill's. Uh, near where Apple offices were from, you know, just uh, off Piccadilly. Oh. You know, where the Beatles yeah. offices were, just up around there. And um, I worked there for uh, about two years. But it was working in a warehouse, um, packing lighters and cigars and stuff with metal metal band, which you could cut yourself quite easy. So I had quite a lot of cuts sometimes on my uh, hands. But um, it's just like, you know, it was reality, you know. It was a physical job, not that physical. And then I I, I then moved from there to the Oval where I worked as a packing whiskey, Dewar's whiskey, which was a bit dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) But I I mean, just for, for the guys, and, and people listening to to this, yeah. I don't want to sound boring, but I mean, this is quite. Int- I mean, it interests me now. Just thinking how things have turned out. Obviously, now I'm in my early seventies. You know, I remember looking at the rag when I was in in the um, when I was working at the Oval. You know, you had the the room where you all sit there and read the paper and eat your sandwiches. You know, God. And I remember opening the Daily Mirror and seeing this thing about Slick, you know, uh, Midge in, in, in the band, you know, and, and they'd got it to, up to number one. I can distinctly remember that. Yeah. I was thinking, oh, lucky bastards. <laughs> so the thing about me that was very, I could experiment. I really love to experiment, but I think 
I really wanted success as well, you know. Yeah. I really liked all the glamour and the the excitement of proper of the pop world, you know. Yeah. I really was a bit of a sucker for all that stuff, you know. Yeah, so eventually we did. Um, uh, we we caught a, had a meeting with uh, our bass player, Chris Cross. His his uh, brother was in a band called Hello, what a hit on Bell Records. Um, uh, I forgot the name of the band. So we did have a meeting with the guy who ran Bell Records, which was quite kind of quite uh, big. But uh, I'm sorry because it was so long ago. I've forgotten his name now. No, no worries. But uh, I, um, I, I uh, remember. I forgot the name of the band. But because of that, we got this um, um, Dick Lee, yeah, DGM. That was the name of the company, DGM Dick. Dick James Enterprise, Dick James Management. It's very big in the early 70s, massive. Mm. I had all this Bell Records, all the hits and everything, you know. Mm. So we actually got to meet, meet him as a, mm. possible, as a proposition to possibly uh, sign up to Bell. This would be in about 75. Because mm. there's a bit of desperation creeping in because we were all getting a bit sick of doing this shit jobs, you know. And John could pick up on that, on, on that but he was separate from us. He was at Royal College of Art, you know. Right. He, he was at college. He'd, he'd gone to, he'd taken the offer, whereas I hadn't. <laughs> so right, yeah. It was getting to be a bit, of a bit of a rub. And I remember Dick James coming out with all this stuff, smart dress book, you know. Right? Smart, you know, we were all stuck. I remember being stood there, actually, listening to him, coming out with a deal. Yeah, we could do this for you. I could do that for you. He says, but we, I'm not going to give you um, a wage, you know. Uh, a retainer. <laughs> you should have seen the look on our face. Fuck off! <laughs> and he could see that, and we just walked out. That was it. So eventually, uh, we kept at it, and we got an interest from Ireland uh, Records, and that was fantastic. I mean, everything uh, that we'd been working for was suddenly laid on a plate mm. to us. You know, and then after we'd done the first, the first album was a bit difficult. We, we weren't that used to. This is after we'd been in the studio doing demos with Steve Lillywhite, which is what happened in 1975. So we were doing these uh, proper demos, uh, high quality demos, proper quality demos in phonographic, phonogram studios at Stanhope Place, just near Marble Arch. Uh, Steve Lillywhite letters in at the weekend, you know, we'd just go all the way through the night and we'd got all these pops, we'd got pop songs and then we'd got this other side of us, which was like doing Lonely Hunter and Dangerous Rhythm. Yeah. So when we did our first album, we used some of the tracks like Dangerous Rhythm, we used that one from Phonogram and maybe some others as well. And the deal was that Steve wanted through us to become house producer of the, of the deal we got. So that was the deal. Hmm. We got a record deal, but you also take Steve Lillywhite as your house producer. And of course, he produced us and then another sort of fairly unknown band that didn't do very well called uh, U2. Never anyway, <laughs> and so let us know if I'm just bagging on a bit too now. No, this is great stuff. Uh, but anyway, that, that's good to know. And um, so we did the album, but we, we were a bit inexperienced, really. It's a case of Highland Records was very good at getting you out 
playing live. They were very much into playing live. So we gained our experience quite a bit. But then there's this massive, 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 massive steamroller of a punk movement just came belting in, you know, and massive in, especially in 1977, which we were aware of. And we subscribed to it to a certain extent. We could feel it, you know, and and the bands were around in 76, because I was always going out watching bands. And this is building up to it. I remember seeing the 101ers with Joe Strummer. Wow. And all this getting faster and faster. That's where, where our sort of Saturday night in the City of the Dead came from, you know. But then mm. it was other bands that clinched it, like Damned, you know. Oh, and yeah. there was all of a sudden, Stiff Records was all of a sudden, in our second year, 77, they were at Stiff Records with, with Dave Robinson. I remember I knew Dave Robinson because I used to go to a squat where he was squatting in uh, Vauxhall. A couple of my mates from Huddersfield were there. Wow. One of them was Robin, Robin Simon, who I brought into the group for the third album, the guitarist. So I, I got to know the stiff lot, you know, Dave mm-hmm. Robinson. I kind of liked him. I, in fact, I did some promotion with him in, in Amsterdam. It's really good. Good bloke. Uh, um, and anyway, we... Um, yeah, so we, we start doing the next album. Sorry, I've forgotten the thread of what I was saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we start doing the next album. Yeah. Got more experience, but we'd start doing ha ha ha, and uh, it was like so slap bang in the middle of the punk thing. You know, it's like what what we're going to do here because yeah. we were getting slaughtered. We were getting slaughtered for having a violin. We were getting slaughtered for playing keyboards. You know, uh, we'd go to places like um, you could sense it. Different parts of Europe, you know, it's just keyboards you know, go away. <laughs> You just had to, you just really had to toughen up, you know. Yeah, so we did the Ha 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 album, which was a case of retaliatory sort of feeling about it, you know. Um, it's a mixed, mixed, mixed bag, was that album, but again, you know, we had sort of um, it would go into classical piano, improvised, crazy, um, classical sort of piano. Um, you know, it was, we tried to keep a schizophrenic thing, you know, and we, and we had some stuff which was quite punky and tough, which is, yeah. which is what we liked as well. But it was a bit of a schizophrenic album. It didn't really make it because some people loved it, but it was kind of full. It, it came across as, the, as if we were trying to jump on the, the back of the punk movement and that, mm. that was crazy because we thought well hang on a minute we were ahead of them exactly you know, so we were caught in a funny position so mm. we really suffered from not getting any real commercial success although i have met some people who were absolutely amazing fans of, of our, our, our you know it's a bit embarrassing because uh, you know they, they don't like they didn't like the next the 80s lineup you know and what was all that rubbish about the <laughs> 80s no uh, and, mm. and uh, but we did a lot of touring, and like I say, when we were still touring, ha ha ha, I decided that we would need another guitarist, a different guitarist, before we went in to make the decisive last album because we knew it was the decider with Ireland, which became Systems of Romance. If that wasn't going to be successful, we'd be dumped. Yeah, and great I felt album. Like, yeah, oh, thank you. And I felt like we needed um, a different guitarist to be able to do it, and I thought Robin. Would, I used to go and see him with a band called Neo in the Speakeasy quite often, the club, the Speakeasy. 
and I thought he was good, getting good. I'd worked with him up in Huddersfield when I was just messing about up there in the times in 1970 when I was in nowhere land, you know, doing bits and pieces. I'd go back to Huddersfield and skint. I remember working with him and Paul just very briefly. We had the ideas of, of starting up a band. So we brought um, uh, Robin into it. And it worked out good because me and him knew each other and he knew the problems I'd got at that particular time. Yeah. Trying to play the keyboards in a band was very difficult. It's very difficult. You've got the Stranglers who played organ, really. Yeah. Uh, I didn't really like organ. In, in my first band, Spring Birthday, I had a Hammond organ and he used to lead me to mess about with it and I just didn't relate to it at all. Right. And then there was Rugulator, there was a great keyboard player who played in a band called Rugulator. Uh, and, but that was kind of organ because that's all there was really, you know. The synthesizers hadn't really come about or if they mm -hmm. were, they were still with the prog guys like Emerson, Lake and Palmer, we couldn't afford. <laughs> but what was amazing, actually I should go back a little bit really, sorry. In 77, this was like my dreams came true in that one day I was with my roadie and a roadie, that's the 70s term, a little van going back to my flat in, in Herne Hill and guess what I'd got? An ARP Odyssey, thank oh. you, brand new, and a, a Fender electric violin wow. taking them home in the summer to work on, you know. So that was my, all that hard work. Oh. Uh, I, I got that. So amazing. Having said that, oh, oh, I did have the start of the ARP Odyssey coming in. I brought it into it, you know, but yeah. it's, it was a bit tentative. It's like the sound, it was so important to me, you know, and how it was presented. And yeah. it was only, it was with Chris, sorry, not Chris, Robin Simon and Connie Plank when we oh. were over there. They realized what I was about because I was very embarrassed but very intense about what I wanted. And then between them, uh, Robin would help me with putting, putting it through his guitar pedals, the sound, yeah. the, the synthesizer sound or the keyboard sound, because I was using an RMI piano, which was like a cross between a piano and a, an organ, which seemed to work okay, but it's all right. Uh, on tracks like Rock Rock, it worked. I quite, you know, it's something quite interesting about it. But there you, and, and then, then you've got Connie, the German guy, the master of using mics and using ambience. Yeah, wow. He used to be able to get um, different strange ambience with it, uh, uh, with the key, keyboards. So all of a sudden, it wasn't just me trying to do something with this thing that looked very embarrassing, you know, like what could be sounded naff, yeah. you know, when you're really naff, like an RMI, RMI piano, you know. Had so much trouble with it. Like when we played Reading Festival, uh, supporting the Jam in 1978 in August at Reading Festival, uh, the RMI picked up the, the lights and made made it sort of growl and this terrible noise. The pickups actually were affected by the lights. Would you believe that? Wow! But before we went on, I'm like, it's just going. <laughs> incredible but, but but anyway just to get back to the music the yeah. um i got the arp odyssey which was fantastic mind-blowing and and 
you know, I got some assistance. Uh, although I, I, I knew how to the direction I wanted to go, they didn't do it for me. But it was great. It's like, oh, I, 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 could I try that pedal, Robin? Or he'd go, oh, try this pedal for a more uh, acute flange or a different kind of effects that he'd got because he was really into effects. And then you'd get um, Connie Plank saying, oh, I've got another way. Because I always wanted, if I did a solo, I always wanted it to feel like it lifted off the track. Yeah. Because keyboards sometimes, the very nature of them just felt like you were just pressing it down like this, you know, and it used to just sit on the track. And I didn't like that. If I wanted a chord, chords, yeah, fine, the pad, yeah, I'll let them sit on the track. I'm not, I'm not about that. But if I'm doing a solo, or a part, I'd like it to leap up. And so we got into this stuff of banging it out through very loud. We play DI, but we put it into the room or a, a small room with something like a Mesabuki guitar amp and just crank it up, you know, so we'd mix that in with it. So that, that's, that's what would lift it off out of the track, you know, with a bit of natural distortion. Yeah. It was a case of working, working with it in a band, you know. So we were, by the time we got up into the 80s, we were a bit of a different kind of outfit, really. By the time we got to do uh, Vienna with Midge. Yeah. He was quite an experienced. Midge had got a bit of experience under his belt as well from playing yeah. live. Of course, yeah. Look back and Like Salvation and also... That's right. The, the ones that became slick. You know, he knew about the live, and he was a good, had a good guitar sound... Um, so we continue with with that way of doing things in uh, on the Vienna album, you know, having this uh, things where if you're going to have keyboards and they need to really speak properly, you know, they can't just sit there and be layered and be fancy, you know, they have to, you know, you can make the sound not just from uh, preset sound two, yeah. <laughs> you know, you sort of get preset sound two if you like it adjust it, make it into your own thing, and then the way you record it becomes something entirely different. But that's all very exciting those times, you know. I mean, if someone said sounds, to me now, yeah. could you get that sound again? Yeah. <laughs> no, because it's lost in the, yeah. in the whole process, you know. And you couldn't save sounds either, you know. All that stuff I was doing on the RP, I had to remember. I used to put little light. Uh, chalk marks or pencil marks. Look well, like Eno, you know, on his uh, when we did. The oh first yeah, one, he yeah. was very helpful on the mini Moog, That's showing right. me he uh, remembers things, putting little pictures on his keys and stuff. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. That <laughs> quite quite. It still sounds great. That album, by the way. Which the, one? Sorry? The the Vienna album, the production on it, just you can still sounds and, and the well, all, most of the albums you did with Ultravoxis, this. They stand the test of time to my ears. It sound they still sound great. Oh, thanks very much. I was gonna say, what was Connie Plank like to work with? Obviously, a legendary German producer. What was he, he was, like, he was, Connie? He was he was really good. Like I say, um, when we were doing the um Systems of Romance album, yeah. he realized the position that I was in. Uh oh. Not just me, but everybody. He, he was—he could see. He'd been in bands, and he'd, he'd worked in studios with crazy musicians, German musicians. You know, mm -hmm. like the guys that were in Can. Uh, Can. 
yeah. and Costa, these crazy guys. Yeah. I met quite a few of them, you know. Noy. And Noy, yeah, he even worked, he used to tell us about the Noy guys, you know, and, and Kraftwerk, he worked in Kraftwerk studio. Yeah, yeah, so he had a lot of understanding of um, texture, which is what I wanted. You know, I was came from that kind of angle rather than fast moving note angle. I was more of a texture guy. And um, he, um, he used to respond and uh, help the sound. By the way, he mic'd it up with various different microphones and ambience, ambience, and to help it find the right position in the, in the sound of the band. He was, you know, he was magical. It's very good. I mean, that's that's just an understatement, really. I mean, he was just he could understand because we went over there later writing in the studio, like when we did Rage and Eden, and you go through these places where you're just completely stuck, you haven't got a clue what you're doing. And and then he'd just come up with he wouldn't stop, he'd, he'd just he'd be there preparing things and helping it, just helping it sound more to give you the idea of what direction you, you're going to, you know, yeah. a particular type of reverb, which was just what I uh, <clears throat> liked, you know, that he knew I would, I would like. Yeah, it was exceptional. No, no, he was, he was uh, exceptional. Sorry, I've, I've run out of, uh, sorry, I've been chatting for so long now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of what to say. Have a sip no, I, I was, I was just, I was just thinking then because obviously going, going back onto Ultravox, obviously the massive success that you had with the Vienna album, and just what that was like. What was it like being in that whole whirlwind? I mean, one, one thing I'm always interested. Obviously, there's, we look at that period with to be very exciting, you know, whole Blitz Club thing, the '80s synth pop. How I mean, at the time, did you think you were in something really special, or did, was it just? head down and just get on to the next tour, the next album. We didn't anything special. We, we would just think that we'd, we'd got something to give and we weren't quite finished with it when we met up with Midge. He liked what we're doing, liked where, where we were going and also yeah. felt like we hadn't finished and we'd got something more, um, more carved, more sort of uh, pointed uh, to, to sort of... Um, more to the point kind of thing, you know, to just bring it all together a little bit. It felt like we could be more focused as a four-piece. Sometimes I used to lose it a little bit in a five-piece. Sometimes, not lose it, but sometimes it's like, what what part am I doing, you know? Ah, it's interesting. With the the guitar too much or or my part is mixing a bit too with crisscrosses synthesizer you know whereas if you get it into four it's uncluttered and you've got you felt like you've got something to continue with uh without whatever's whatever's going on outside so we didn't we didn't really know Uh, i mean there's some stuff on there which because i still liked albums i you know i wasn't going to suddenly start trying to do single single songs you know yeah although they were we did pop songs. We did Sleepwalk. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, 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 passion, uh, not, uh, passing Strangers. Yeah. And then we did these more rock 
um, slightly proggy things, really, like uh, uh, private lives and new Europeans. Oh, great song. You know, great more, song. Uh, albums like tracks. And then we did the real electronic thing with Mr. X, and we did the big noisy thing with. Uh, uh, what was it called? The first one, the first track that it starts with. Um, is it Ad Astra? Yeah, Ad Astra, the That's first, right, yeah. first one. Yeah, the, the instrumental. Um, you know, so we were doing all these, all these no, not, not Ad Astra, it's something else. Isn't it? The first big in, instrumental. So we were fulfilling what we really were wanting to do. But, but then we were a bit out on a limb, really, because, I mean, where does Western Promise fit in? I mean, I came up with the, with the melody for that, and that's really almost a little bit like the kind of thing I could have done when I was at the hippie commune in <laughs> Norfolk in 1969, you know. Fantastic. You can improvise with it, you know. Yeah. And it's and then it drops down to the doom, doom. But but we were lucky because I'd, I'd just been working with Gary Newman, so I'd got Gary Newman's riffs in my head because I've been playing them you know, on the mini move. That's right. You you part of his early career, weren't you? Working with yeah, Gary. yeah, amazing. So I've been doing that in '79. So so that's where that riff came from. I didn't copy it or nick it or anything, but I got the CS80. And, and again, from, from working with Connie, you know, I've got, that was the first time I got digital echo. So I could put a very short echo on it, type, type slow echo on it, E1010, they were called Yamaha. First digital echo was 1980. And, and so we go on to the CS80, and you could bang it with your fist. You could hit the, the keys with your fist and mm. it did a bit crack. You know, like it's almost like, like take your head off. You know, it was like metal. It was like metal, really. It's like as if you were hitting something. You know, yeah. and I and so it was a riff which was doom dee doom do 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 dee doom do 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 but the thing is, it was a bit sharper than hippydom, wasn't it? You know what I mean? Yeah. It was a bit of hippydom, but it was just sharper, you know. It was, exactly. So I think that's why we were accepted. We were bringing things in, dragging them back over from the 70s into the 80s. And, get, and we still wanted people to uh, like albums, to have the expanse of sitting down and listening to an album. Yeah. You know, and then, then it was weird. We, when it drops into, that's in A minor. And I was always the guy that was trying to link the tracks together key-wise, you know, but at the end of So that brings it into C at the end, you know. Yeah. I can still see Midge's face. Yeah. <laughs> when I did that, dum, 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 it sounded actually quite naff. <laughs> but we, all, we all sort of looked at each other and went, yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Nodded, yeah, all right, that'll do. You know, yeah. you, you work work people, aren't you? You know, you're working together. You know, yeah, all right, that'll do. That'll do the job. So that drops down to dun 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 dun, and then we go into Vienna. You know, yeah, Vienna. We never talked about a single at all. It was just an album track, but obviously, it was a bit 
the way it was put, the third track on side two, you know, the vinyl, it was a bit of a, the height of the album in a way, there's a lot of attention on it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we didn't know that that was going to be a success at all. It was That's just... So you had no idea when you were when you were writing it that it that you had something special that this song was going to be as big as it was. No, no, that's amazing to think. When was Visage? Was that simultaneously with Ultravox? Yeah, Visage. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, I was simultaneously working with Visage as well in 1979. Uh, you know, um, and um, you know that's when we. Um, yeah, we. we I was working in 1979 when I could because I worked with Gary Newman. Yeah. And uh, so I just had to try to, try to sort of fit it in. And I was also working simultaneously in 1981 as well. We, we did Rage in Eden, which was a difficult album to do, or mostly all in the studio, in which we went there in winter and we came out and it was bright summer, you know. <laughs> so it, it was the beginning of summer, uh, sort of. March, April, May process, three months. And then as soon as I got back here, it was a bit difficult really being in two bands because we were lining ourselves up after a holiday for me and Mitch to go in and do the second album, Visage album, which was the summer of 1981, which was great fun. I enjoyed it. And two, and success of both. I mean, obviously, uh, you've uh, been involved in so many good songs there's too many to sort of mention, but obviously to have to co-write Vienna and also Fade to Grey is just mind blowing to me because they are arguably two of the biggest songs of the eighties. Not just the eighties. I mean, they're still they're songs that people love today, aren't they? I mean, that's quite an achievement to have under your belt. Well, thanks very much. I'm, I'm amazing how it happened, really. Yeah, it's fantastic. Really, really, it's amazing. I mean. Um, I mean, the thing is, the, the the Vienna track, that came about, apart from the middle section, from just me, Warren and Chris having a lot of experience working together, writing together by then. I mean, I got the verse together. I mean, I just went in and said, we're doing this, it starts like this, and it's in C. I remember doing it, it's in the middle of January, easy hour, freezing. You could hear the punk band next door, you know, the walls were so thin. And I remember starting that, and that's, you know, and it did have a feeling of going C to F, just C to F, slow, doom. But I didn't play C, I was playing E, which is the third of the chord, yeah. which gives it that eerie feeling and makes it feel sound quite minor, but it's actually in a major key, which makes it more palatable for people. I mean, we were quite sus by then and I like I say I always wanted hit records so I was always keeping that in mind of what people might find interesting yeah not, not easy I wasn't trying to lay out any sugar-coated stuff you know no. something that would be get their interest but it's because me and Chris have worked together for so long that at the end of that when I didn't know what we were doing he just suddenly starts doing something in B flat uh, you know, B flat to F, doom, doom, really loud. And he fades up, which is a classical thing, because he got the classical thing from me. You know, so it's, you know, I've got that, doom, 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 
I'd got that from the previous tour when we were in America because mm-hmm. we were doing a version of Dislocation. We were doing a version which had a jam at the end and they were all on synthesizers. It was a complete madness, you know. And I decided to go back on the piano just to give a bit of clarity and I started doing this which again was an influence from, I remember his name now, Terry Riley. Yes, yeah. yeah. That guy that we couldn't remember, like that's Steve right. Wright, yeah, that terrible yeah. Riley thing. But I thought, no, I won't do that kind of uh, textual, repetitive stuff. I'll just use it as a doom, 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 to take it to the next chord F. Yeah. But then it, it was like doom, 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 and and Chris went into a B flat, and I was I would not go into a B flat simply because it's going down. And if we're going to go to a chorus, you need to write, raise it, especially when you're doing a ballad, a slow ballad, because I was very afraid that it, it would become morose in the second verse. And if it's morose in the second verse, you have to bin it. Yeah. You know? And this is the thing with minor, minor ballads, they tend to get morose. But this was major. So it goes to this dum 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 dum. It's like, what, what's, up, what's he on about? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I played along with it with the piano. So I used to play the piano and the strings at the same time, you know. So I started doing dum dum dum, dum just picking out his notes, dum 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 dum, dum 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 dum. But at the end, it goes dum 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 dum. dum. He goes B flat G, B flat. Now I wouldn't do that. That's something that Chris would do as a bass as a bass player. He would see that. I wouldn't. Because a dum dum is like that's making a, a B flat major into a G minor seventh. Dum 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 dum. And that's really palatable as a chorus and for people to get. And then you drop down on the end chord dum. This is before Midge has done the vocals. And it's like, well, Midge wasn't doing anything there, he was just watching, you know. But I can still, once we got that and we went into the second verse and it re- lifted. I could explain why it lifts, but I won't. It could be, it could be a bit too much for some people. You might think I'm being too, too bit of a bore. <laughs> but the verse is in, in in the dominant key. It's in in the fifth key. The thing's actually in F. But when you go into the second verse, the verse is in C, which is the fifth, and it lifts. So you've got this thing of me hitting a low note, which yeah. is an influence from Mitch, because by that time he don't need a better piano. Thank you, Mitch through his mates, the zones. I was using a different kind of Yamaha piano. And I love the bottom note. So I, I at the end, Oviano, and I go boom on that low note, you know, that low note. But it's a low note goes down, but it actually lifts. And that's what's actually mind-blowing, quite mind-blowing for me anyway. You know, it goes dumb. It establishes the second verse with a low note. So anyway, we were on to something by then. And then that's when Midge, opposite me, I could see him. He rarely sang lyrics in the the rehearsals. He used to quite often just go home with a backing track and come back and then he'd have something. But this time he was just coming in with something. You know, I could sense this melody coming from him. So it was beginning to happen with, with the vocals because he wasn't doing anything. He just felt, great, I can just think about the vocals instead of him getting to... It was nice, I could see he was kind of in a good place because he wasn't having to think about what notes to play. He was thinking mm-hmm. about the vocal part. 
And then basically that was that. We performed it and in the middle section at the Electric Ballroom in February 1980. This is to try and get a deal, but we bunged it into the set because A&M were, com were coming to watch us. And in the middle section, I just did some improvised piano because I was able to do that, you know, from my jamming experience, you know, yeah. with those guys in the hippie commune. And then it just came back in with the chorus at the end, but it was so a bit like, oh, so what? It was a bit like, well, nothing's happening really. But what happened? Nothing happened really. It's because it just stayed the same tempo. And I can remember once coming, leaving rehearsals, and I was living in Chiswick, I think, then, in Bedsit. Mitch was there, living there, so. And uh, not in the same place, different. different. And uh, I remember coming back home once and thinking, I've got to come up with something that lifts people up, carries them along for a, a short amount of time, and then it drops them into the last chorus. It was a clear vision that that's what I had to do. Yeah. In the middle section music, but I hadn't got a clue how I was going to do it. And, uh, but I knew from starting from basics, uh, especially with, because I'm lucky enough to be able to work with people who I've worked with a long time. It was a real plus that I'd worked with Warren and Chris from 1972, really. You know, I, I joined in 73, they've been together in 72. Because I could come to Warren and say, look, I want to speed up at this point, like a, what's called a rallentando in the classical world. So I did go... To take off into the new tempo yeah. for the middle section. And he's right, completely in tune with what I'm talking about, you know, just simply because we've done quite a few albums together, you know. He, he knew um, what I was talking about. So we got that nailed, programmed. I said, right, okay, I'll leave it for 16 bars. That should be about it. And on the last bar, I wanted to go you know, program that in. Yeah. We'd have to do it bar by bar, real basic programming. You know, you'd have to get a, a section. A section would literally just be maybe one beat. You have, you have to kid the drum machine into you get a section and you program it at a certain tempo. So to get it to slow down, you'd have to have. 16 temples you know this was dead early co computer stuff this you know yeah you could do it do your head in really you couldn't say you couldn't slow it down across a one tempo it didn't know how to do that so you had to program in a very short section like literally a beat and that would be that and then another one a little bit slower another one a little bit slower you know and you should go through all those and then, and then at the end, it did go back after the return, and uh, in, in, I'd asked Warren to program it. It did jump back into the original uh, tempo for the last chorus. But so once you got that, then I knew how to um, start filling it in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I would know how to um, knew what the chords were on this on the uh, Alka Rhapsody, you know, those really cold strings. Do, do. I thought about the chords, which is just a very simple rising uh, of, 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 it was a, a matter of rising, really. It's like, yeah, one bar on G, 
one bar on A, one bar on B flat, and then quick C, D, one bar on D, one bar on E, one bar on F, that's when it goes to the major, major, one bar of G, and then it have a quick A and to B flat and B flat right at the top, this is the bass. Then you'd start with that descending thing slowing down. Yeah. And that's that's how we have to do it. And 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 Mitch played his part um because he was very good on the Yamaha string machine. I was still more of an Elka man, but I bought a Yamaha string machine, the SS30, but he was, he played it a lot more than me and he was very good at it. And um, he was playing this cello part and on this SS30, the cello sounded brilliant. So, you know, the first thing that comes in there, obviously the violin comes in, is that do, 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 do. You know, you can, that's when, they were getting more sophisticated, so you could put in a slow, in the ADSR, you could slow the attack. So it would be doom, 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 you know. So it sounded very much like a, as if a cellist, cellist is playing it like that. And that was a very important part. I mean, I had to tell the guys what notes I had in mind and what the chords were because it was, Sometimes it was a little bit above my head because I didn't realise what I was getting into because it's late 19th century chords which we hadn't used before, not in yeah. Mr. X. They were straight minor chords. Well, not straight, some had major sounds in, in Mr. X, but these, they were like diminished chords. You know, when I say, um, uh, like the first one was G, minor, the second with an A in the bass, but it was actually A, C, E flat with, an a, with a G at the top. So it's not fully diminished and they're quite romantic chords. It's the kind of chords that people like Elga would use, uh, um, Wagner. So it's, it was a bit mind blowing to me. I mean, it, it was obviously in my head because it had come out of my head. Yeah. But it was from playing Elgar, which I, I liked. When I was in the school orchestra, I played in orchestra. I was a leader of the viola section for four years. So I've obviously got all this stuff in my head. But when, but when it actually came out, I was a bit taken aback. Like I didn't quite understand what the chords were, in other words. So it was a bit of a learning process for me. And uh, I sometimes got the the chords actually wrong while we were writing it. I got the chords wrong, you know. So um, it's a bit hard to explain. The second chord is actually a diminished A. Yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, I mean, even now when I think about it, it, it's, it is actually a complicated little bit of music that just makes these different feeling moods, you know. Yeah. It's the, the diminished, um, when, I, when I talk about diminished, I mean, if you think of an E and a G, and then a B flat, so that you've got a flattened fifth, and then just a, a, a flattened seventh, a D. They're not they're not too diminished. They're not, not too de depressing. They're, they've got a little bit of Debussy in them, you know, a bit sort of modern feel to them. I love watching um, footage of um, Ultravox performances that you've done over the years. Uh, I think I have to say one of my favourites is Live Aid. 
And I just wondered how, what was it like playing Live Aid? It must have been a, an amazing experience. Yeah, it was massive. That, that was about as big as it all got. Yeah. It was just ugh, getting a bit crazy. Can you remember much about the day or was it sort of a massive? Well, it, it, it was massive. Yeah. There's a lot of imploding bands. I mean, bands that were falling apart, really, then, like Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet. Ultra box. So I don't want to put a downer on it, but I think we're all just going a bit mad. Yeah. We'd had quite a few years of extensive touring. And then that came along and that was just mind-blowing, the 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 amount to think about the amount of people that were going to be watching us. But it was very, very stimulating and very, very exciting. But um, you had to uh, glue up the cracks as well. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, there was cracks crack showing in the band. Yeah, uh, so we had to, and it was very difficult because we weren't. I wasn't under control. I like to be under control. You know, it was a, a, a charity project that was done by Midge and and Bob. Yeah. So it, it was just like you hear that you're on on the thing. Oh, are we? And then. Uh, and then you think, oh, well, that's fantastic. You know, obviously it couldn't be any other way. But you didn't really feel like you had any control. But it was for charity. It was for a great cause, you know. And, yeah. and, all co- and considering it was in front of billions, yeah. it was very dodgy in the way that you had to set up and then the stage rotated. So we were on this, on the one side of the stage, which was away from the crowd, wow. checking on our gear, <laughs> setting up, you know. Wow. And with my tech guy, I mean, I, I actually used the opportunity to use some new gear. I, I used a TX816, which was a rack of 10 DX7s. I was experimenting with a new string sound. Wow. The DX7, where you bank them up, you know, and detune them, which didn't sound as good as the Elka, good old Elka. I wish I'd used that. Or the SS30. No, but we were trying different things. Yeah. And... I had a piano which was uh, which I'd hired, which I was going to be using for the first time, which I can't remember the name again. Sorry. That's okay. A name from, from the 80s. Didn't really continue much after that. So, you know, we were trying new gear. It was the uh, only thing I can say about uh, Live Aid is that it was truly mind-blowing. I can't even I can, imagine. Uh, just looking it? down and seeing Mitch playing playing doing the cello part on his emulator you know emulator they'd only just come out you know i mean relying on an emulator in front of how many billion people i was at the back i didn't like playing at the back but you had to be because the stage turned around yeah but i was really i was pissed off because they had the the keyboards on the on the stage for for um Boomtown Rats. All oh, right, yeah. It was a big hassle getting all his keyboards on. And I like to be on the stage. I don't play on, at the back of the stage on a riser. No, no. I thought I'd have it out. Yeah. But I was very close to Warren, so I can remember playing Vienna and just looking across to Warren and just fiddling around with the knobs on the tip uh, on his little cube drum machine. You know, it's like, oh, fuck's sake. Yeah. Amazing, you know. And oh, um, incredible. And then I remember getting on the violin. And the camera came to me, you know, because you, you couldn't be, it was so big, you couldn't really see where the camera cameras were. It's not like you were on top of the pops. But when I picked up the violin, I remember seeing this guy get, get me, you know, so he's, he's, he's got the camera on me. 
And, and as, as soon as I started thinking about the camera, this uh, feedback came in. <laughs> and you can always tell you're in trouble when this feedback starts, starts coming up. It feels like it's going to lift you off the stage, you know. Yeah. And my violin sound sort of disappeared into a howl of feedback. Uh, funny enough, though, when you hear it uh, on uh, the streaming pro platforms now, which is, they've appeared there just over the last few years, they, they don't sound too bad. Yeah, no, they don't. Like, oh. No, I was, even, the, even the violin bit on, on Vienna, I was like, oh, that's not too bad. I mean, yeah. you, hear the, you hear the ridiculous amount of feedback, but maybe that wasn't recorded, you know. Yeah. Obviously not. I mean, it's just, like I said, I was playing that the other day and it still, still sounds amazing, did that performance. Um, and it's probably a, a, a really good memory to, to kind of end on, actually, because I just, um, and I want to thank you for um, spending some time. I've, been, I've really enjoyed your stories today. They've been fascinating. Oh, thanks very much. I'm glad you did. I, I did rattle on a bit, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. No, I enjoyed every, every minute of it. It's been a real joy to listen to it, and I'm really pleased that you've come on. So thank you for taking the time out today. Oh, thank you very much. I'm, I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you.